Okay, go ahead, Ben. Uh, the host disabled participant screen sharing. Okay, can you share your screen now? Ready to go. Okay. Okay, good afternoon, Mid Plains Ag, and everyone in uh, that part of the country. Uh, this is Ben Buckner from Ag Resource Company in Chicago, and this is the third of our series of webinars. Um, and not a whole lot has changed, but as we have seen the markets evolve over the last three months, everything has kind of come to fruition as expected. Most of that is due to, you know, I think broadly favorable U.S. weather patterns, which should continue for another 10 days, and so there's just not a lot of excitement. There's also not much of a weather story anywhere. Everything looks pretty good. Maybe there's some heat and dryness in Ukraine that needs to be watched, but otherwise, I think we're looking at trend or above yields in the U.S., Canada, Europe, the Black Sea, China, and even down the road, perhaps Australia and South America. And so there's still this sort of bearish landscape for the future, especially for corn. And really only two grains are above January values, and those are sorghum and rice. And that is due to Chinese demand for U.S. sorghum and U.S. homestay and world homestay demand for rice. Chicago corn is down 14%, beans are down 9%, and wheat is down 12% as of today. U.S. ethanol industry, of course, has added to the bearish 2020-21 U.S. and world corn stock outlook and price outlook decline in domestic corn grind from February into June, and we're still not seeing a full recovery at the moment. So we think that the USDA probably will have to cut another 75 or 100 million bushels of corn from both its U.S. old crop and new crop consumption forecasts. And really, until there is a COVID-19 vaccine available, we think that the you know, economy and gasoline consumption especially will plateau at a level of you know, 5%, 7% below last year. And so it's really taken a lot of the raw material growth story away. You know, that growth story did exist 100 days ago, but now that is gone. The world corn market, too, will be defined by already large and rising competition for export demand. And so as we debate you know, the uh, precision of U.S. yield forecasts, whether the first and second half of July, production everywhere else. And in South America, those crops are really being harvested, so that growing season is done. And, and so these combined major exporters will have a lot of supply. And we've even seen Brazil really start its corn export program in the month of August, and, and it continues into December and January. So if you think about the competition for world corn trade in the October, November, December period, it's gonna be steep. And so you're only going to find demand if you're an exporter through weaker basis, spot basis, or flat price. And so that's just not a, a, a bullish phenomenon for the feed grain market longer term. And now there's this uncertainty over the U.S.-China phase one deal, which was one of the silver linings of the U.S. and global ag market outlook in 2020 and 2021. But now we're blaming the virus on each other. China told U.S. meat exporters over this weekend that it will require signed affidavits that COVID-19 is not in the shipped product to continue exports. And that's a legitimate fear, and we think this could spread to other commodities in other countries. But for now, the point is that U.S. meat exports to China are coming to a grinding halt. Will they all, uh, demand the same affidavit on soybeans in the future? And does it spread to other countries again? And so that's one sort of unseen impact of the spread of COVID-19 that we're, we're seeing for now and potentially in the future. 
Fortunately, the USDA is there to help the U.S. farmer. And so 2020 total farm revenue was forecast to be you know, near unchanged for the last couple of years, but up to 45% of that will be through government assistance programs. And that is a record percentage. So a huge cash influx will provide income to the farmers to help them try to store as much as their new crop harvest. But we're seeing, assuming normal weather, production capacity exceed storage capacity by a pretty big margin. And so what can't be stored will have to be sold. And so we think mountains of grain will dock the Midwest until late autumn, summer, as new storage ways are needed to be found. The basis will go down. The longer-term bullish trend demands a 25% drop in the U.S. dollar or a supply loss from a major import, whether that's, um, you know, Europe in the case of corn or vegetable oils or, or China, really, maybe uh, East Asia, uh, parts of Southeast Asia. But that's probably unlikely because, again, we're now through the half, first half of summer almost, and, and we don't see any major problems for production. So that uh, loss of supply will have to be a 2021 phenomenon. The outlook very broadly, corn is the most bearish. Soybeans await Chinese demand or political uncertainty, while the wheat market awaits final black seed wheat production totals. But those black seed wheat yields seem to be getting larger as the early harvest has started. And so like the last uh, webinar, we started out with this, and we still have these broad deflationary trends, and it's still hard to be bullish of anything really. You know, there has been a nice pop since the doldrums of COVID-based lockdowns, but raw materials appear to be reaching some sort of plateau. And then this makes sense given 13% unemployment, uh, which could be getting bigger. As savings are drawn upon, maybe that impacts the stock market. And so just very generally, we don't think that there will be more demand for raw materials than there is currently. And that probably doesn't change, like we mentioned last time, until there is a COVID-19 vaccine. And a big part of the raw material space, of course, is crude oil. And the market, uh, the energy markets have rallied, but that seems to be because of future tightening of supply, not anything happening in the near-term cash markets in energy. You know, we can see that crude oil inventories, less strategic reserves, are at a record high, uh, 541 million barrels. And so that's up 15% on the year and it's still rising. You know, we can see that rig counts in the U.S. have been decimated, are record low. OPEC extended its record 10 million barrel per day crude production cut into the end of July. And so mathematically, we can see a tighter crude market 12 months from now. But it doesn't seem to be the case uh, currently. And we'll all be watching for the impact of, you know, perhaps the second wave of the virus uh, returning to the world this autumn and fall. It's certainly not dead. And so again, this highlights just that, you know, raw material markets as a whole, those indexes will probably be pretty neutral at lower prices than in recent years. We mentioned unemployment in the U.S., 13%. The Fed is pumping lots of money into the economy, and then that has been very helpful, probably what's the right thing to do. But unfortunately, we're not seeing any inflation because the velocity of money, M2 money, which includes everything that's even somewhat liquid, um, no one's spending that money. And so this measures just the, the change in, in dollars spent on the same amount of goods, and we're seeing that, you know, this has been a long-term trend, but until spending and the velocity of spending ramps up, I don't think that we'll see inflation. And so that's just a further headwind to the raw material space. And now checking in on this uh, post, you know, peak COVID recovery, it's happening. And this is all good news, but it's just happening at a pretty slow pace. So this shows restaurant bookings year over year in the U.S. and globally, and they're very closely tied together. But you know, even as of G uh, June 20th, restaurant traffic was still down 60% in the U.S. and across the world. This number probably does continue to get better, but it's very difficult to be bullish of food markets until we get to 0% change, or even down 20% from the previous year. 
maybe we can hit that through the summer travel season the summer but thereafter it probably changes and, and again and again we think all this stuff plateaus somewhere measurably measurably below year ago levels and we're keeping an eye on the you know, the return or you know, the the lack of any cur uh, curve flattening in some of these states that have reopened perhaps prematurely so we can see new confirmed cases of COVID-19 a record on June 22nd in Texas. And so again, no curve flattening. And what does this mean for the economy? Yeah, the same is true even in California, which has been really, really tightly locked down for a longer period of time, but still alive. And so as we learn about you know, the ecosystem of viruses, you know, COVID-19 is not a specialty disease that requires very specific conditions to live. It just lives in human beings that are alive. So until this thing is dead or eradicated via vaccine, there will be these questions about demand growth. And so whether states or the nation goes back into lockdown, that is purely a political move. And we don't think that politicians or the public really have the appetite to go back into lockdown. So maybe this is something that we just live with. But I do think that there will be a measure of caution on behalf of a lot of the population. And of course, people who are sick are out of any kind of spending game for two or three weeks. And so this is still here and it has not gone away. And we just want to highlight that and that the black swan can fool us once, but we do not like to be fooled twice. Gasoline consumption is recovering along with restaurant traffic, but it's still down 9% from last year. And again, do we think we'll, we'll plateau maybe four or 5% down from last year based on negative US and world economic growth projected through the end of calendar year 2020? Ethanol production looks very similar. You know, the recovery has been pretty impressive and it's happened faster than expected, but to meet the USDA's projected ethanol demand draw of 4.9 billion bushels, weekly ethanol production needs to average 295 million gallons per week starting in July. The latest data released this morning showed production through last week at 262 million gallons. So there still is a lot of work to do to prevent a further swelling of old and new crop stocks in the U.S. and globally. We think COVID-19 too has not impacted biodiesel production as much, but it has eliminated growth. So the October to March year, you know, based on a soy oil marketing year, is down 95 million gallons or about 10% from last year. Calendar year biodiesel production in Jan to March is unchanged. But where does the demand growth come in soybeans? If it's not China, it's certainly not the biodiesel market, and it's certainly not the mill market, you know, based on uh, you know, weak meat production growth. And speaking of China, we need them to step up buying. Now, this has been a talking point for a long time. We don't think China meets that target. But if that target is still in play, you know, through April, they have spent officially about $4 billion on U.S. ag goods of all kinds. And if they need to meet $36 billion by the end of 2020, this pace needs to change considerably. Now, some of these numbers will get higher. China's bought you know, up to 2 million tons of soybeans in the last 30 days, but that will all be calculated once those beans are shipped, and those are mostly for new crop positions. So I think we'll see China spending on ag goods to stay fairly weak, probably into you know, data release in June, July, and we don't think that they get to that $36 billion target, given that there's a potential change in the U.S. administration coming later this year. And partially because of China, I think the trade war started off a lot of, uh, you know, unseen consequences. We've seen uh, the U.S. ag balance of trade be negative more often than not. So on a value basis, the U.S. has been a net importer of ag products in three of the last four months. 
And as of April, the value of ag imports exceeded exports by a pretty sizable $730 million. And so you can see that the U.S. ag trade balance was a pretty sizable part of U.S. GDP growth, to be honest, prior to 2018. But now we're really struggling just to keep net exports uh, sustained on a month-to-month -month basis. And as we start to look at weather through the first half of summer and into the month of July, again, like I mentioned, it's just hard to find a real bullish weather story. It will be fairly warm. The discussion already in the markets is centered on you know, overnight temperatures in the upper 60s, perhaps low 70s. And that's been a talking point really since that's what is suspected to have drawn down corn and soybean yields in 2010. But we've also gone through pretty warm overnight temperatures in 2016 and 2017 uh, to, to, not, to no material impact on corn yields. But aside from maybe some heat into July, soil moisture looks to be pretty adequate. And again, we've got corn pollination probably due in, in the principal corn belt in the next three or four weeks. And so we need to see a major change in this trend if there is going to be a weather threat and known supply loss. And one of our big things since the beginning of summer is, you know, the, the upper atmosphere worldwide has just been very, very fast moving. So the jet stream moving across the United States has been very, very fast. And that just gives us changeable weather patterns. So if we do see some, you know, high pressure ridging, uh, promoting heat and dryness for a few days. It just can't be sustained because the jet stream is moving so fast. We will bring in a different weather pattern every three to five days, and that's what's given us pretty good weather so far today. So anyway, five-day precip ending June 23rd has been pretty heavy. The eastern part of Nebraska, Iowa, really into the whole central part of the Midwest. And especially, you know, where Iowa borders all surrounding states, it's a really, really concentrated corn area and soybean area. You know, we can see one to three inches pretty widespread there. Even prior to this, there wasn't any major lasting dryness to talk about outside of the western uh, the plains. And so soil moisture anomalies as of June 23rd, mostly positive, especially for the primary corn and soybean producing areas. And there's more to come. You know, even NOAA's human-based forecast this morning includes pretty heavy rainfall across the eastern Great Plains, Iowa, uh, Wisconsin, Missouri, even Illinois. This is the 10-day European model forecast, which has been the better performing model all summer. But, you know, we still have additional, you know, modest boots and soil moisture across most of the Western Corn Belt into the Southern Midwest, Mid-South, whole of the Delta and Southeast. So the far south Southern Corn Crop started pollinating several weeks ago, but, we, you know, now it's starting to pollinate in uh, Southern Illinois, uh, Kentucky, and Tennessee. And under some pretty favorable conditions, so it will be warm, not excessively hot. Soil moisture will be very, very good. And those crops you know, in the Mid-South should finish pollination really in the next 10 days. This 10-day forecast looks pretty good. So again, it's just hard to find any kind of major weather story. For the month of July, for what it's worth, the CFS latest model forecast is pretty normal. Perhaps some heat east of the Mississippi River, but otherwise no glaring threats to production. We're also looking at a pretty favorable weather pattern in Canada, so that should add to high-protein wheat supplies. Oil seed supplies, too. We think that canola crops could be pretty big this year. So, again, just highlighting that it's very difficult to find some kind of bullish weather story worldwide, and now that we're through the first half of summer. So here is where we are, and then this is where we've been. The corn market especially will be dominated by oversupply. There's, there's no way of really changing that at this point. The question, though, is how the market solves this problem, I think, moving forward. So here are just some weather scenarios for the 2020 crop year. 
Now let's assume we do S&P takes the top end of yield off and we've got a national yield of 173 and a bit lower acres as a result of that. Assuming, you know, we think pretty um, normal demand growth, we still have in stocks of nearly 2.9 billion bushels of that. If we post a new record corn yield this year of 179, we're add to feed residual use, but we come up with thin stocks above 3 billion bushels. So in neither case, does corn need to be valued above 350? And at what point do we start to switch acres, both here and in Russia and Ukraine, perhaps in parts of South America? We think that that is solved through you know, a lasting period of low prices. Now, I don't know if the goal of the market is to send December corn to 270, or if corn stayed at 320 for 12 months, both seemingly would accomplish that. Trimming acres, finding all available demand, but that is the story for corn over the next eight to 12 months. Major export of corn stocks swelled to 19%. Again, the market will be defined by competition for export demand. Major export of corn production is growing significantly. Growth in total world trade is not growing that much at all. So we have more bushels competing for less demand growth in terms of trade. And these oversupplies, what, you know, what does it mean? We're starting to compare what it's probable size of crops against storage capacity that we know as of now. And so we think that on-farm storage will only be able to, to store just over 60% of the combined corn, wheat, and soybean supply in the US in 2020. So this has been trending downward as yield surge and investment in storage outside of the primary corn belt has actually been in decline over the last decade. This will have, I think, a meaningful impact on the cash markets for the foreseeable future. Isolating Illinois, for example, you know, big crops can't be stored, they have to be sold. And so there is a broad relationship with whether we can store the crop and basis levels. This slide shows how much of the corn and soy crops can be stored in Illinois versus harvest basis. Harvest bids do already reflect this, but this suggests that corn basis will be 25 to 35 below Chicago futures for the foreseeable future. This is where bids are currently for new crop, but those bids probably won't change. They're not just uh, being floated out there to see if they can to grab supply or to encourage selling in the nearby positions. This is a, a valid basis bid for the central part of the Midwest. The so basis will probably be weaker than the last several years. And this is really the crux of the argument in terms of oversupply and its impact. And so this shows the stocks to use versus average cash price curve for corn and where the USDA's forecasts are. We don't have any major problem with these forecasts. You know, the 2020 season average cash price of 320 for corn looks a bit high, but we can see that this curve gets very, very flat as stocks to use grows. And so as it approaches uh, infinity, let's say, the, the curve doesn't move very much at all. So in that sense, a 320 cash corn price is probable. But we did want to highlight just how dislocated this is from the curve as it stands now. And it gets us into this argument of, you know, despite having corn at 340 in December, is this a place that should be sold? Should we be looking at capturing revenue if December corn does go to $3 or 280? Neither price is very attractive, but we'd rather be a part of capturing that 40 to 60 cents than ignore it. And we also look at this chart in the context of 2021 crops and the premium uh, to the curve here. 
And, and so in spite of not being very attractive, we are urging producer clients to be very proactive in marketing for this year and for out years. Because as we're growing supply and the U.S. is oversupplied with corn, there's still no mechanism to change this globally. I mean, because the South American economies are in shambles, especially because of COVID in Brazil and because of the lack of political leadership there, currencies in Argentina and Brazil have really, really weakened over the last 30 days. And so this slide has been shown before in Mid Plains webinars, but we wanted to point out that still corn is six times more expensive than it was in 2014 in Argentina. In Chicago, it's down about 40%. And so this shows the difference between prices then and prices now in the U.S., which are down, but there's still massive profitability in South America. And the same is true in, in, uh, in Brazil. And the rail has only gotten to record lows in the last month. And so it makes more sense. And growing corn in Brazil makes more money than it has ever made even at today's prices at the Board of Trade. And the USDA, surprisingly, this early has acknowledged this. You know, they forecast higher seedings and yield and production in South American corn balance sheets for 2021. So these are the crops that will be planted this October and November. Even in the last June WASD, they raised Brazilian corn production by 1 million tons, which is, was an unusual usual move, but does make sense given weakness in the real. And so assuming normal weather, South America will produce a record 157 million tons of corn compared to 151 million tons this year, which is also a record. And so ever expanding production outside of the U.S. is the story unless the U.S. dollar collapses by 20 or 25 percent. And so production elsewhere is getting higher. We will probably have a record corn crop this year. And this shows the difference between growth in corn production of the major exporters and growth in total world trade. So over the last three years, world corn trade has rallied to new records in each year and outpaced growth in production of the major exporters. But for the first year since 2015, 2019-20 uh, exported production will be up nearly 15% from the previous year. World trade will be up only 4%. And so there's this discrepancy between what we're producing and what is being consumed. And probably the U.S. will be forced to store corn. In Brazil, Argentina, and Ukraine will be awarded export business starting in October. We mentioned that the value of government assistance, which is, which is very, very nice and helpful, will be at record levels. So this is from, uh, this is from FRERS. 2019 and 2020 forecast of direct farm payments, but we think this probably gets closer to 45 or 50 billion, so by far a record. Particularly as this is an election year, the farm lobby is probably stronger than it is during election years, especially presidential election years. So I don't think that the farmer will be ignored. It would just be simply government payments. And so more and more we're farming for these government payments. So. You know, it's, it's good and bad, but we do want all the producer clients to have everything lined up, all paperwork done, uh, and ready to collect every possible amount of aid that's given. And so we also think that this oversupply is, is going to be lasting. And so we don't think that corn acres will be cut by more than eight or nine million, maybe not by more than five million. But assuming harvested corn acres in 2021, because of a lasting period of low prices, are cut by nearly 9 million acres, 
normal trend yield will put us at 180 bushels an acre for probable yield next year. Because we're carrying so much corn over into the next crop year, we're still looking at 3 billion bushel in stocks. And so it's just going to be very hard without a demand driver to solve this problem of oversupply. And so that's the message that we want to deliver in this uh, webinar is that everything looks pretty bad now, but there's just not much to change it in the next 12 or 14 months. And so again, I highlight this. And think about where December 21 futures are, you know, 370 or better. We think that's a sell anywhere close to 380 because of its premium to what probably will be season average cash prices of three and 320. Even if there are yield pickups here or in South America, it's just very, very hard to alleviate oversupply without something new like the ethanol program. We don't see anything like that. Perhaps Chinese demand would help the US market, but now we're fighting with China. And so we're not sure if the phase one deal will actually be executed to completion. And so that's kind of the message. And it's not a good message, but oversupply and a lack of demand growth sort of argued for you know, a lasting period of low prices. And so it does pay to be proactive in marketing in this case. You know, selling out of money calls will provide nickels and dimes uh, added to revenue. Again, 2021, these corn futures have what could be 70 cents of weather premium at the moment, which goes away over time if there are no major issues. And so that is kind of a strategy at Ag Resources. It's being, being active and looking forward for opportunities. And so again, I thank everyone for attending this and we are always here to help with questions and marketing strategies. Just please reach out at any time. Thank you again. Okay. If, if anybody has any questions for Ben, be sure to email, send, get them to us or you can email Ben. It was Buckner at agresource.com. That's right, Rich. Yeah. Buckner at agresource.com. Uh, you can contact us anytime. We will be posting this webinar on our website. Hopefully we'll probably get it posted in the next day. So if anybody wants to come or you don't want anybody that'd like to watch this, I, I personally feel these are pretty good webinars give you a good perspective on what maybe is coming in the future and what to plan for. So we hope everybody finds these useful and we'll keep trying to do it. And if, if you can help us promote these webinars, uh, please do so. So with that, I guess, thank you, Ben. Thank you, Rich. Thank you, everyone.